Let's pray together. Father God, it's your breath in our lungs. It is your, your spirit that is making our hearts beat. It is you who is giving us life right at this moment. And that is a gift from you to us to be used for your glory. Hmm. We surrender ourselves to you as you teach us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In order to become a citizen of the United States, I had to take an exam, a exam before a man who asked me questions about United States history, all kinds of questions. And so as he answered, in fact, what happened to me is I didn't realize this was my test. I thought I had to go in for an interview and that the test would be in the future. It turned out that the interview and the test were all in one. And so as the guy began to ask me questions, it was like, oh, oh, I said, is this my actual citizenship test? And he said, of course. It's like, oi, okay. I'm so glad I had prepared ahead of time and, and, and done the readings that I needed to do. But then he asked me one question, and he said to me, what is the number one law of the United States of America? Now, don't shout anything out. Just hold it to yourself. What is the number one law of the United States of America? And I thought, the number one law? Do unto others before they do unto you? <laughs> it was kind of like, I said, I don't know. That, that question is, is hard. And, and I found, I've tried this on others, and many people go, I have no idea what the answer to that would be. Well, what it is, is the Constitution. And he said, the Constitution. I said, well, if you'd asked it differently, I may have been able to answer. Like, what underlies all the laws of the United States, there would be a different way to go around it. But so this morning, I put you to the test. What is the official motto of the United States of America? Oh, okay. If you look on the back of almost every, of all of our bills, it says there, in God we trust. And I checked the, the coins. It's only on the penny. I may be missing something, but the only one I could find it was on the penny. In God we trust. And this was brought into law in 1954. I think it was, it was President Eisenhower who signed the, it into law that this would be the official motto of the United States of America. And, of course, it's been challenged and challenged in the courts. And so far it has stood, withstood all the challenges. But then we have this question. Uh, all right, so... How true is that of us, of a nation? All right, I don't want to be in a fight here all day, okay? But still, how true is that of us as a nation? But more threatening is, is how true is that for each believer in Jesus Christ? Do we trust God and do we let him guide our lives? So don't raise your hands and don't answer this question either, but think about this. There are so many important decisions we make in life. What career we're going to choose, who we're going to marry, what house we're going to buy, what car we're going to buy. <laughs> anyway, we have all these really important <laughs> questions. Just in, this, in, in your own heart, how much prayer did you devote to each of those kind of major decisions? I mean, think about talk, choosing your spouse. Seriously? Did you pray, Lord, may I find the most morally, spiritually mature person? Or you're going, I want somebody pretty. <laughs> okay. How much of our attention do those major events in life draw? How much time do we spend in actually seeking God's will for our lives? And then comes the question, why would 
I want to know what God's will is for my life. See, all of us, because Satan planted it in our brains right at the beginning of time, all of us live with this thought, if I trust in God, he's going to take something good from me. He's going to keep something good from me that I would want. That's what Satan's temptation was to Adam and Eve. If you eat of that tree, God's going to rob you of the opportunity to be God of your own life. That's literally what he tempted them. And so all of us are born with this thought that if, if I trust in God, he may not give me the things that I want, the good things that I want in my life. And so I'm scared to trust him with that. Also, I'm scared to trust him that he'll come into my life and start micromanaging me. And he will make my life miserable. If I let God govern my life, he will make my life miserable. Do you remember the three wise monkeys? Ever seen the little cartoon of the three wise monkeys? You have these three little monkeys sitting there, and it's to teach us how to live. And it's, it's, it's what? It's, it's hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I saw a better version of it. It's the four wise monkeys. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, have no fun. <laughs> and we're terrified that if we let God in and let him govern our lives, he will take something away from us that we want that would be good, or that he's going to micromanage our lives and he's turned, going to turn us into absolutely miserable people. Well, trusting in the will of God is one thing that God wants us to do. And I want to show this to you before. Interesting thing. The name that Jesus used most often for God in the New Testament, I think it's something like 168 times, the name that Jesus used most often for God was Father. Because he wanted us to get the concept that God in heaven, once we believe in Jesus Christ, becomes our Father. And the word was Abba, which is a very, very soft word. It, it's translated into, into English probably more like Daddy or Papa, something very affectionate. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, Our Papa in heaven, hallowed be your name. Isn't that amazing? That that's what he wants us to see God as as a God who doesn't want to micromanage our lives. Oh, please, come on. God's got more important things to do than to micromanage Raymond's life, thankfully. But anyway, God doesn't want to micromanage our lives, and nor does God want access to our lives in order to make our lives miserable. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, with a capital L, and life to the full. I've come to let you experience life to the full. The Apostle James, writing the very first letter to the churches, realized that this was an issue he had to address in the life of the very first Christians. And the Spirit of God knew that he would have to address this to, in the life of all Christians of all times. Because there's something about the will of God that we are resistant to, but that we need to allow God access to our life. Now, in order for us to grasp what's happening with James, I just have to give you two words to deal with. We can either be fatalists or deists. I try to find English words for these, but you're just going to have to learn what they are. A fatalist believes that God is in control of everything that happens. Every single thing that happens. A fatalist believes that you are dressed in the clothes that you're dressed in today because God chose what clothes you were going to wear today. That's what fatalism is like. And it can become an incredibly paralyzing concept that if you live that way. Islam believes in a fatalistic God. That whatever happens is what God has determined to happen. And regardless, that's what happens. Whether it's good or bad, God is ultimately to blame. Fatalism means I've got no choice. 
that God is in charge. He's this, he's, he's this puppeteer in the heavens, and he's constantly moving my life. And actually, whatever happens, happens because God is moving my life. That is not what the Bible teaches. God does not. He could have created us as, as puppets, as robots. He could have created a world where we just did what God ever God told us to do. He could have made that world. He didn't. He chose a very different world. We'll talk about it in a moment. The opposite end of the spectrum is a deist. Now, a deist is somebody who believes in God, but who believes that after God created the heavens and the earth, he went off to do something else. And he's not involved in our There is a God, but he's not involved in our lives. And we run our lives however we want to because God has no say, has no access, got no interest in our lives at all. Well, when you open the Bible, you discover that that is not true. That when you open the Bible, you discover that God is committed to us a commitment of loyal love. What's the Hebrew word? Let's hear it. Oh, I love it. Those of you who are hearing this for the first time, there's a word that reappears over and over and over and over and over in the Bible to describe God's relate, the way God approaches us. And it's a Hebrew word, chesed. You've got to spit, by the way. So say chesed. Okay. The chesed of God cannot be translated into any single English word. It takes sentences. So, for example, the love of God that will not let me go. Psalm 139 says that from the moment of conception until the moment you die, every part of your life God wants to be involved in. Not because he's a micromanager. Not because he wants to push you around. But because he loves you. And he wants to be part of your life. The book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, that's a book everybody needs to read. You, you first read it, you think, what the heck is this book doing in the Bible? Isn't that true? You read it and go, I can't believe this book says that. Here's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The, the writer said, I want to take God out of the picture. And I want to find out what can make my life meaningful here on earth with God taken out of the picture entirely. And so he does that. And he starts to look for ways that his life can be totally fulfilling by all kinds of things. So, for example, one of the things he tries is he says, so I tried creativity, and I built great buildings. And I finished these buildings, and I went, yes, look what I have built. And then one of the walls fell down. And then this wall over here gets mold on it. And then that part there, a flood, washes away. And he's going, ah, oh, I can build these things, but they crumble. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. That no matter what you try to find in life, that will fulfill you, that will make you go, oh, yes, is like a mist. It can disappear in no time flat. The guy who wrote it was a king. And he built an incredible king. Solomon built Israel, expanded the borders. And wonderful. And he said, yes, I'm a marvelous king. I've built my kingdom. But what happens after I die? Maybe a fool will inherit everything I built. Two fools inherited it and split and destroyed his kingdom. And so God wants us to understand that his loyal love toward us is not to micromanage us. It's to help us live life to the full and to experience life to the full. Now, the letter to James is being written to people who are theists. They believe in God. But they're functioning as deists, as if God is not involved in their lives. And so James writes a letter to them. Uh-oh. <laughs> Siri just interrupted me. Leave me alone, Siri. God makes this statement through the prophet Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, 
Those words were spoken to national Israel while they were in being punished in... Uh, you're leaning against the switches, please? Thank you. The, <laughs> you notice lights disappearing? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, other way. <laughs> All right, thank you. Where was I? Oh, okay. Those words were spoken to national Israel after they'd been sent to, into captivity in, in uh, um, where? Babylon. And God promised the nation that he would bring them back and bless them this way. So those words are really for national Israel at that time. But they reveal the spirit of our God. They reveal the heart of our God. He says, the plans I have for you are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in the future. Well, what do you want me to do then, God? He says, I want you to submit to my will. Remember Jesus taught us this in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, our Abba in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we bring our needs to him, whatever those needs may be. But notice that we start by saying, God, I'm submitting my life to you to govern my life, to lead me, and to make my life into what you want it to be. Jesus himself said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And by God's grace, he did God's will. Remember in the Garden of Eden? He prayed and Lord, said, Lord, if it's possible for, the, for salvation to come by any other means than me going to the cross, then take it away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And by God's grace... He did God's will. The same thing is true for each of our lives. God has got a plan for our lives, okay? He's got a way that he wants to use you and me, every single one of us. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And so God wants to give us lives that are fulfilling, lives that are, are, are effective in the lives of other people. But in order to get there, James says, I first must recognize my mortality. And as he speaks, and we'll see next week, he speaks to two different groups of people who were, who were dealing with finances in the wrong way. The first group were upwardly mobile. The other group were the mobile, who were already up there, who were, who were, who were using their, their money to oppress other people. But he talks here to the upwardly mobile people. Do you know of any upwardly mobile people? Do you know of a culture where people are upwardly mobile? That's us. We're all upwardly mobile. Now, if, you, if you're awake, still stay with me. If you're falling asleep, listen carefully. None of what we're going to read tells us that we should not be ambitious. None of what we're going to read tells us that we should not work hard. None of what we're going to read tells us that we should not be people who plan for the future. What we're reading is that James is trying to pull us back to this place where we live in this loyal love relationship with God that we don't function as deists who think that we can run our lives completely independently of God, and God is not interested. God is very interested, but he's not interested in the sense that he wants to micromanage us. He wants to bless us. So James is writing to a group of people who are functioning like deists. They believe in God, but they're running their lives without any reference to him at all. He says, all right, now, you need to recognize your mortality. You're a frail creature here on earth. He says, now listen, you who say, by the way, now listen, was a way of saying, look me in the eyes, pay attention. Now listen, you say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. 
Now, that's how in those days, if you were a merchant and you were upwardly mobile, you were wanting to, to build your nest egg and you were wanting to earn a lot of money, they actually had to travel. You'd have to travel. In those days, travel took a long time. So you travel to another city. You take all of your goods with you, spend a year there while you sold your goods. Then you'd buy stuff to travel back home with. So that's why it seems like a, a year there. But he's basically saying, be careful that when you say, this is what I'm going to do, be aware of the fact that you've got limited control over what is going to happen. I moved to San Diego in the middle of the dot-com bubble. And I joined a company here, and we were going to make money. And we had an incredible profit. I mean, we, our product was, I still think our product could work today incredible product and we were going to make money and we were going to become wealthy and I was even given shares in the company and it was like yeah and a year later the bubble popped and and then we had another bubble housing buy houses buy more houses buy lots of houses and if you buy lots of houses you'll have a ton of money and the housing market's going to keep going up and you'll be going and it popped and the bubble came down and we're watching Wall Street right now and the bubble is doing this. And it's like, yeah, we're on this ride forever. No, we're not. No, we're not. All bubbles pop eventually. And James, first thing he's saying, okay, you're planning. And you're leaving God out of your planning. And just be aware of the fact that there's a simple little truth here. You're not God. You can't control that that's going to happen. And more than that, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. <laughs> it's like, don't preach at me, James. Move on. Leave me alone. You ever thought of the fact how fragile our lives are? Did you know you cannot conceive of yourself ceasing to exist here on earth at this time? You cannot really conceive of your death. I read this just recently. Big study that they did trying to figure out, do people really anticipate they're going to die? And you know what? No. We think about it, we talk about it, but actually at the core of our beings, we don't believe we're going to die. We're going to live forever. I do. I, I know I'm not leaving, so you're stuck with me. And James says, you're like a vapor. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. So what do you want us to do? Become fatalists and not plan and just let God run my entire life? No. In fact, the Bible is full of statements like this. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during the harvest is a disgraceful son. The Bible says, if you will not work, nor should you eat. In other words, he's not saying to us, become fatalists and, and give up any planning, or give up any working, give up any ambition. Not that at all. It's just a matter of bring all of that into relationship with God. And he gives loyal love to us, and he wants us to give loyal love back to him. And so the first thing I must do is I must face my mortality. The second thing he says I must do is I must submit to God's sovereignty. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And notice that now, it, it's, there's two pieces there. He's saying, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that. We plan. We get ambitious. We have our ideas. But we bring them and we submit them to the will of God. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that once you've submitted to the will of God, then you bring your need for food and for protection and, and for, for, for forgiveness. Then we bring those needs before God once we have brought them under the, the control of the Lord. And you go, yeah, but I'll lose, is what Jesus said. 
And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, that is the world that rejects God, runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. That verse has proven so often in my life that, that I can tell you it is absolutely true. When I was in, in, in graduate school, four years of graduate school, we had, to do, we had to learn Hebrew and Greek. I can barely handle English, okay? We had to learn Hebrew and Greek. And after our second year, I was now starting Hebrew, and I was already into Greek, and yeah, just my poor brain was going, I can't do another day of this, Raymond. And it's like, shut up, we've got to keep going. Shut up, we've got to keep going. And during that summer, between my second and third year in graduate school, my wife was injured in an accident that injured her back severely, and she had to have surgery. And so my wife, I worked, and my wife worked, and that's how we were able to afford to go to, to graduate school. But with her injury, it meant she had to quit. She was a nurse, she had to quit. And so she couldn't work. And so I got to that point, it was like, we prayed about it and said, Lord, you know i got to keep going. This language stuff is going to bleed out of me. We've got to keep going, but I don't know how you could possibly do it. So I actually went to the seminary and told them I can't sign up yet for the third year. And she had her surgery, and I came home from the hospital after she had her surgery. And by the way, the point I'm making is that this is a verse that God used over and over in my, in my life. Came home from the hospital at, after she had her surgery, and the phone was ringing, and I answered the phone, and a woman said, is this Raymond Van Plessen? I said, yes. She said, is your wife Melanie? I said, yes. She said, I've got some bad news for you. It's kind of like, oh. <laughs> oh, I forgot one thing, by the way. We had a VW bug, and my car swallowed a valve and died of indigestion. <laughs> so I had a wife, had surgery. Our car was totally broken. And yeah, I was like, and she said, I got bad news for you. It's kind of like, oh, get in line. I got lots of bad news. She said, you, when your wife worked for us as a nurse, um, we forgot to cancel her health insurance. And I'm afraid that you owe us for all of the payments on her health insurance. I said, okay, how much is it? It wasn't, wasn't that much. I said, oh, that's okay. And then before I hung up, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I said, is her health insurance still in effect? She said, yeah. I said, how much does it cover? She's just had a surgery. How much of her surgery will it cover? She said, 80%. <laughs> I had health insurance through the graduate school, through the seminary, that covered 80%. So I called each of the companies, and I said, do you cover the surgery even if somebody else covers it? And both companies said, yes. 80% plus 80% adds up to um, how much? I got 60% of all of that back in cash. I was able to pay for the, her, get her out of hospital. I was able to go back to seminary, fix my car, and we bought a color TV with the change. <laughs> and I've seen God do that in our lives over and over and over again, where he says, trust me, okay? You stay within my will. I'll do everything I can. It doesn't mean that, that I'll... Well, I've never missed a meal, you can tell. That doesn't mean that I may not miss a meal someday, that, I'm, that I will struggle. It doesn't mean that. It just means that we're really within God's protective care as we do that. And then, based upon the fact of recognizing my mortality and submitting to God's will, James says, I then make wise decisions based on God's word. Here's how he says it. 
As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Don't, don't think you can run your life without God, okay? You can't. You're, you're, you're too fragile. You're, you're, you don't have a control over the length of your life. You don't have control over events. But one thing you do have control on is to live in relationship with God. And he quotes a, a proverb here. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And that proverb refers to the scriptures. And it's pointing about the fact that what we do in order to know how God guides us is we align ourselves according to his word, what God has told us. How do I know what God wants me to do? He's given us everything we need to know in terms of the big picture in the Bible. And I think I used this as an illustration a few weeks ago. A man that I met once had written a book, Gary Friesen, wrote a book, Decision Making in the Will of God. And he taught, teaches these principles, which I found extremely helpful. When you have to make a decision, you ask three questions. And we start at the middle. Is it moral? Is it wise? What do I want? So, for example, clothing. Is it moral? When you got up this morning, you had to answer the question, should I wear clothes to church or not? <laughs> okay, coming to church naked would be immoral. Believe me. Okay. Then, is it wise? The next step out is, well, what should I wear to church? Well, coming in a bikini is not going to be appropriate, okay? You're going to get dressed a little bit more than that in order to come to church. And then, what do you want? So none of us stood in front of our, I hope you didn't, stand in front of your closet this morning and say, God, please tell me what I must wear today. Should I wear red or green? No. We just make the decisions on that basis. He uses a great illustration. What if a guy falls in love with two girls? And they both love him. And it's like, <laughs> which one should I marry? Well, then you do, is it moral? God says, don't get m married to an unbeliever. You'll, you'll create havoc for yourself and for your children. So is it moral? Are they both believers? And in this case, he goes, yeah, they're both Christians. Then comes the next question. Is it wise? They both, they both may, be, it may be morally okay, both of them. But is it wise? And if you examine both of them and you go, oh, both of them, it would be wise. And then God does the third question. Well, what do you want? Like, no, no, God, you've got to decide for me. It's too hard. I want you to decide for me. Shine a light on her or do something to let me know. God has created us as independent human beings who've got free will. And under his sovereignty and in the relationship with him, he gives us this incredible free will. In fact, did you know that your prayers are part of how God works out life. He's given you and me say-so in how the universe operates through prayer. You go, are you kidding? No. Remember, there was an occasion when God said to Moses, step aside. These people have disobeyed me. I'm going to wipe out the nation. Step aside, Moses. And Moses went, no, no, no. Your reputation is at stake, God. You can't do that. And God said, Moses, I'm going to start this whole nation again through you. Now get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses said, no, God, you cannot do that. And it says God changed his mind. God didn't change, but God changed his mind. And think about the things that we haven't prayed about, where we've been fatalists and we just let God do what God's going to do. It's the thing I can do. No, God says your prayers can change the world. Whew, isn't that incredible? So he's given us this incredible thing. Is it moral? Yeah. Is it wise? Yeah. What do you want? Go ahead and choose. As long as it's moral, wise, choose. My biggest danger is cars. <laughs> is it moral? Yeah, I need a car. 
Is it wise? Yeah. Okay, but really, hmm, can't really afford this one, but it's so cool. Which one do you want? I want this one. No, it's not wise. Do you see how it works? And so God gives us guidance through his scriptures on what we should do. Now, do this. Be aware of misinterpreting circumstances. Lots of time we go, oh, you know what? I know I should have bought this car because when I walked into the car, under the lot, that was the car right in front of me, and that was the circumstance, and God said, buy the car. No, it just happened to be there, okay? Watch out for circumstances because circumstances are circumstances. It's only in retrospect that we can look back and say, I think I could see God's hand. I can see God's fingerprints in that decision, not circumstances. Watch out for impressions, okay? I feel, hmm. I feel this is the right thing to do. <laughs> Gary Friesen calls it a liver shiver. <laughs> I feel this is the right thing to do. Don't trust your feelings for crying out loud. Feelings are, what's her name? Debbie Boone actually sang a song. It can't be wrong because it feels so right. Bless her. Our Christian sister sang that stupid song. <laughs> it, it can't be wrong because it feels so right. Ah. Oh. Yeah, God, we're going to have sex before marriage because we love each other. And God up in heaven goes, Oi, I didn't think of that. There's a loophole. There's a loophole in my law. Oh, they love each other. Oh, okay, you can do that. See, your impressions don't govern you. Be very careful. Inner peace. Lots of time people say, I had peace about this decision. And they make a wrong decision. Why? Because the peace they had wasn't the direction of God. It was just the simple fact that they quit thinking and worrying about it. Think about that. You can't make a decision and you're worrying about it, 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 and so you finally decide, I'm going to go with this one. And now you feel peace. Why? Because you've eliminated this one. And you're no longer really in the middle of all of that struggle. But it may still be the wrong thing. And then watch out for fleece. Lots of Christians say, I put out a fleece. Do you know where the fleece came from? Remember Gideon? God told him what to do. And Gideon said, all right, God, just to confirm that this is what you want to do, I'm going to put a sheepskin out. And I forget the sequence. Uh, and uh, if, if this is what you really want me to do, then let the ground all around it be wet tomorrow morning and the fleece be dry. And lo and behold, that's what happened. And he said, wait a minute, let, let's just try this again, God. I'm going to put out a fleece, and tomorrow let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry around it. God should have fried him at that point in time, by the way. <laughs> Because God had told him what to do, and he was, God, in his grace, God went ahead and did that. So putting out the fleece was actually a, a, you're asking God to do a supernatural thing. It must be supernatural. And nowhere does the Bible teach us to find God's guidance by putting out tests like that. Uh, I love Gary Friesen's other thing. He says, all right, so a guy thinks about this, and, you know, I, I wonder if I should date this girl. I tell you what. I'm going to dial her phone number, and if she answers the phone, God is telling me that I can date her. He says, no, 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 no. If you really want God to do this, then what you need to do is find somebody who doesn't know her, who doesn't know her phone number. Give them your phone, and tell them dial any number on planet Earth. And if she answers the phone, then maybe God wants you to date her. But only maybe. Do you see the point? So when it comes to knowing God's will, we start with the Scriptures. And we ask the question, is it moral? Then, is it wise? And then beyond that, he says, okay, what do you want to do? It's interesting that in the East, when an emperor was sworn in in Constantinople, when he was sworn in to become the next emperor, before he took the vows and before they poured the, the oil upon his head, 
a stonemason would lay down in front of him four marble slabs. And he had to choose which one of those marble slabs was going to be used for his tombstone. And they did that in order to remind him, you're not going to live forever. You're becoming king. You're not becoming God. And so make sure that you make those kind of wise choices. So I've, we're, this is our annual meeting, and I just want to give you God's absolute statement to us as to what his will is for Medlock Church. You ready for this? Okay. Calm down. Okay. I don't know it's absolute. Jesus said to his disciples, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. You don't know when I'm coming back again, and you're not going to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I know it's absolutely because that's the commission that God has given to us. That our job is to be witnesses about Jesus Christ here in St. Marcus and in Carlsbad and in Vista and to Oceanside and to the ends of the earth, Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. God has got a commission for us that we as a church don't exist for ourselves. We exist for others beyond us. But when you talk about St. Marcus, Jerusalem, you can expand it this way. And you will be my witnesses to seniors and boomers and busters and millennials in the coming generations. Our job is to do everything we can to reach people of all generations. And thank God for the way in which he's led us and he's guiding us in order to do that. So that's, in a sense, just to give you a spirit of, as, as you commit to this coming year and commit to our budget, that's where we, we want to keep going so that God uses us to touch the lives of others outside of our own selves. How do I know God's will? Moral will. What does the Bible say? Wisdom. What does the Bible say? Freedom. Choose. Because God doesn't want a puppet. He wants people who live in life-on-life -life relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father God, we sang earlier, and I think we're going to sing again about you being the sovereign of our lives. And we're going to sing a song in which we commit to you that you're going to be king of my heart. And I thank you, Father God, that we are a church where we already exist. We already experience so much of your blessing on us because of the obedience of your people. I pray that we will be ever more obedient in the year to come. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.